0: Welcome to All Things Erie from Erie, PA. I'm Kathy, your host for today's episode. And before we start, I would like to say thank you to everyone that's been following and listening. Sorry it's been a while, but life is crazy, and sometimes you just have to slow down and smell the roses, and remember that family comes first, no matter what. This week's episode is about asking yourself how well do you really know your significant other i mean really know them i'm not talking about their favorite color or what their favorite song or even their favorite movie is or anything like that what their favorite shirt or favorite sport team i'm sure everyone can name something like that about their so i know we're all supposed to have things that are private and that we keep to ourselves, which I have no problem with. I don't snoop on my SO's phone and I love that he can indulge his hobby. However, there are things that we all keep to ourselves. I like to think that I don't, but we all have secrets. But what's the worst secret that your SO could have? That's probably what our next victim thought also. Maybe he showed his true colors every once in a while But what happened? This certainly will make you wonder the next time someone is very vague with an answer from their past. And then there are those who cannot literally talk about things they have done because of their jobs, of being in the military or working for certain government jobs like the FBI or CIA, something like that. And we have family members who have done jobs like those but I want to talk about a man named Regis Brown, who's 59, who was living quietly in his home in Fairview Township with his wife, Michelle, and his stepdaughter, Tammy, and his step-granddaughter. Brown was originally from Fairview. He was born March 23, 1959. Brown married Michelle on September 4, 1999, and that made Brown the stepfather to Michelle's two children, And stepfather to her grandchildren, step grandfather, excuse me. Brown and Michelle were married for 19 years. 19. Now that's a long time for anybody. And then one day Brown snapped. But over what? No one knows. The way people found out, and I'm going to give a trigger warning up front here was what. Michelle's granddaughter, when she went to school, she told someone what happened. She had said that there had been a struggle when her mom had come home on Friday, which had been that March 9th. Now, the daughter slash granddaughter could hear what was going on. She could hear her mom screaming, quote, what are you doing? Stop it. Stop it. End quote. It was at this point Regis had took her mother to the basement. The girl then said that she had seen her mom's legs had been tied and that there had been blood along the side of her mom's head. Now, I just want to be clear here before I go any further that I have named the grandmother and I had named the mother in this episode. I am not going to name the granddaughter slash daughter, remember Erie's a small town and anyone who will hear this will know who i'm talking about without me even naming her and she is a victim and underaged so let's get back to our episode now at this point this is when brown took the girl's mom tammy and tied her to a rocking chair that was in the basement and proceeded to stab her in the chest now michelle was not home still at this point. But when she had returned home, that was when that she had shared with Brown. Remember again, for 19 years on Westridge Road, Brown went to the garage where he immediately started to beat her, which caused trauma to Michelle's head. Brown also had stabbed Michelle several times in his initial attack. Now the granddaughter, step-granddaughter, said that she had not seen her mom or grandmother after Brown had attacked Michelle. It was at this point that Brown had taken her to a room and tied her up where he kept her all weekend, although he did take her out to eat on Saturday. Now, imagine this. She just saw on Friday, that Friday, her mother and her grandmother viciously attacked and murdered at least that to her mind, and then he takes her out and ties her in her bedroom, and then that Saturday, he takes her out to eat like nothing ever happened. So her mind has got to be all messed up. She went on to say that Brown was out of the house on Sunday and that she slept in her bed that night and that she got up on Monday morning and went to school. What would have made him flip so bad that he snapped and killed both women, one that he had lived with for 19 years and the other who he had been in her life since she had been 16. Now the state police found the bodies on March 12th around ten twelve in the morning in the house that Michelle once shared with Brown. They had been sent there for a welfare check because Michelle hadn't shown up for work at st vincent hospital they had also been informed from the local school that tammy's daughter had not been at school or she had showed up at school and that she had some marks on her wrist also that she had when she had been asked about the marks that she had told the principal that it had been her grandfather that had tied her up on friday although michelle had been found on the floor in the garage she had been wrapped up in a carpet. Tammy had been found in a bedroom in a chair and she had been covered with a blanket. He had covered both victims with blankets after murdering them. Now to me does that seem like there was a bit of remorse or was it shame because he had held back on his impulses for so long? I mean to me that's a, that's a big question. Now why didn't he kill the step granddaughter? He even took her out to eat in public where she could have passed a note to someone or told a waiter, waitress, someone, anyone. Or was it a test to see how she would react if he gave her some freedom? He thought she might be too scared to say anything, and would they believe her? You know, this is his downfall. I mean, leaving those marks. You know, was this a mind? I mean, was he messing with her mind? I'm trying not to drop those F-bombs. Um, but, you know, this going back to the, the murder scene, the forensics believe that the two women were murdered between four and six on March 9th, which course, cor- uh, correlates with what the granddaughter had said. And they were pronounced dead after 7 p.m. on March 12th, which they probably were gone long before that. They also found a pair of broken scissors and a sledgehammer that looked like it had been covered in blood. So imagine what those women had gone through. Imagine the trauma. The police had put out a bolo on a blue Suzuki SUV. Brown had been driving. He had been driving his stepdaughter's car and ended up being found in the city of Erie. He had been pulled over in a traffic stop and he had been taken into custody. And really, Fairview and Erie, it's not a big distance. It seems like it because it's a lot of open country until you get into the city of Erie, but it's not a long distance. Now Brown admitted to killing both Michelle and his stepdaughter. Brown was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of aggravated assault, abuse of corpse, and unlawful restraint of a minor. possession of an instrument of crime. But that wasn't the end to this story by any means. And I'm going to tell you this is going to be the longest episode I will have ever done in one sitting with the exception of the three-piece episode that I did. Bryce Kenneth Tompkins. Now Tompkins was from Newcastle, PA and he had been murdered in 1988 and his body had been tossed into a creek. Now, a state police investigator named Joe Facetti came to talk with Brown because he had been a suspect in Tompkins' murder. And now, you have to ask yourself why. Again, why? Brown, who he himself, people found out, was a felon. Now, this guy had been living in their community for years. And a little background on Fairview. Fairview is kind of, they... They believe themselves to be on an upscale uh, community. And they have, they are, uh, they have a, a very nice area. And to find themselves that they had a felon like this in their midst was a huge scandal. Um, I'm just going to say that right there. Vassetti came to talk to Brown because he had been a suspect... In Tompkins murder and Brown who is a felon was suspected to have ties to a biker gang now biker gangs nowadays you kind of don't hear a whole lot about them but they still do exist and when you think of biker gangs you think Blue Angels now obviously Regis denies any wrongdoing back when the murder first happened but Now, in 2018, Brown confessed to killing Tompkins, who had been an innocent victim, but to the surprise of state police, Brown admitted to killing up to eight people in Lawrence and Erie counties between the years of 1986 and 2016, and that's still not it. Adding more to it, he claims to have information to at least 10 murders that happened going back as far as the 1970s, and this was, and this is where some of the information becomes vague for us. The police didn't have any more details because what Brown said was, quote, at different areas, different times, random specific killings, serial killings. Quote, serial killings. Now, was Brown just, using that to grab their attention so he could see if he could get a deal. The reason given for killing Tompkins, Tompkins was Brown's neighbor back in 1988, and he had seen Brown and another man named Paul M. Ayersman break into someone's place, so they killed him, plain and simple. As for Iersman, he's no longer alive. Now, at the time, both men had been brought in for questioning back in December of 1988 for the burglaries that had been going on in the area. And in one of those interviews, and in one of the uh, break-ins, a 38 cali- caliber Smith & Wesson revolver was stolen. Although it is known to be the same caliber of the gun that was used to murder Tompkins, who had died after being shot in the back twice, Now however, the gun was never been found to date. And in an article I found in Newcastle News at the time, Brown had been picked up and in his possession, he had a 12 gauge shotgun and a leather jacket that had been stolen from a home on Wallace Avenue in November of 1988 in Lawrence County, Pennsylvania. Now Brown was sentenced to life plus 20 to 40 years in September of 2018. But in October of 2018, he was having additional charges filed against him in connections of prior homicides. The state police in Newcastle filed charges of felony criminal homicides, aggravated assault, with and witness intimidation, fatally shooting 45-year-old Tompkins of, on December 26, 1988, which his body was then later found in a creek in Hickory Township. Now, Brown was very open in his confection- a confession and killing of Tompkins. He told the troopers that he buried the gun in the backyard of his home in Newcastle. And now that house had been torn down since he had lived in the house in 1988, and the weapon has never been located on that property. And in a new interview with Lawrence County District Attorney, Joshua Lin- Lemanuska, I hope I didn't butcher that too bad, he's quoted as saying, <clears throat> quote, he described where the killing occurred, the motive for it, the disposal of the body, and the sub- subsequent burial of the thirty-eight caliber pistol, end quote. Now, both Brown and Ayersman had been taken in and interviewed, which were spoken about, before. Now, through some research in an article by Erie News Now by Tim Hahn, way back in February 1989, the police had been interviewing Ayersman, and that Ayersman said that Brown admitted to killing Tompkins, and that Ayersman was willing to cooperate for a reduced sentence. Like they say, he who talks, walks. But they ended up escaping from the Lawrence County Jail In April of 1989 where and were apprehended in Erie in July of the same year and the district attorney then refused to grant Ayersman a plea bargain just because uh, because of his his escape I mean I don't know I'd be hard-pressed to want to honor that deal also but to get someone for murder the greater good what could you offer him except a reduced sentence community service for what 10 years I mean he escaped from jail I mean And maybe Brown found out about it and talked him into escaping from jail, you know, because he knew he would not get that deal. You know, I mean, not secrets do not happen very often. You cannot keep secrets. I mean, there's just no secrets. Now, Brown himself, after all of this, he was being monitored for 10 years. So how could he have killed All these other people that he was confessing to in 2018. He confessed to killing people clear up to 2016. What did the police know about Brown in that 10-year frame? According to multiple sources, while under surveillance, the police learned that Brown was still affiliated with several outlaw motorcycle gangs in Erie. When in previous interviews, Brown denied any connection. Now, the first rule in being a criminal, deny, 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 and deny some more until, what, you get a better deal? I I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not a criminal. I don't know. Brown was considered a person of interest in a homicide in the quarry area, which is southeast of here. When the investigation was going on, they didn't have enough information about the quarry homicide to connect Brown to it. Now, according to Lieutenant Todd Post, was a crime section commander for the state police, uh, Troop E in Lawrence Park Township, according to Erie News online article by Tim Hahn. In, and in that article, th- that's what they said, that it, it, they just didn't have the information they needed to connect him to that homicide. Now, according to another article in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, at Brown's sentencing, on September 19th, to which he was confined to the State Correctional Institute at Camp Hill, Judge John J. Trusilla was quoted as saying, I'm looking at the face of evil. This is as evil as I've seen, end quote. And according to an article from Erie News Now by Jackie Roberts, the question that everyone wanted to know at Brown's sentencing was why. Well, obviously, they want to know why. Why would you snap at this point in time? It's been 20 years. You live with this woman. You've, you've had a life with her. You married her. You've helped raise, finished raising her children. You were in her granddaughter's life from the moment of her birth. Neither Brown's attorney nor Brown himself would speak about the motives as to why or what Brown did, so nor did he ever apologize for what he did. Now, Trooper Vassetti stated in a news conference, we had him in a room, he was defeated, and he knew that he was probably going to serve life, a double, a double life sentence in the murders. He accepted his role in that. He knew that I knew that he was involved in the Tompkins homicide, and I let him know that and we just got that out of the air quick. It wasn't a situation where I was going to ask him. I was telling him he knew that and confessed. Honestly, everybody knew at this point that he was he was the one that pulled the trigger. If Ayersman had talked, everybody knew at that point, so it, it, it made no difference at that point. Now, according to an online article from 11 News, Brown told Vasetti that he and Ayersman went up to Tompkins while he had been out for a walk, and Iersman had forced Tompkins between two buildings to confront him about the burglary. Brown then said that he shot Tompkins twice with the revolver he had stolen during one of the robberies that had been going on in the neighborhood. Hunters later found Tompkins' body, which had been partially submerged in a creek about which which had been partially submerged in a creek north of Newcastle on December 26, 1988. According to the article from the Herald, Brown was to be charged with two counts of aggravated assault and one count of intimidation of a witness in connection with the death of Tompkins, and those charges were read to Brown by video by District Judge Scott McGrath on October 24, 2018. The victims of those that Brown had murdered obviously were glad that he had been put away. The family, Alan Greenewalt, who is the son of Michelle and the brother of Tammy, was quoted, the fact that I don't have to see him anymore, that's great, physically anyways. Mentally, I see my mom and my sister and him every night, so that's the part I have to struggle with. But that wasn't the last from Regis A. Brown, AKA Rex Knight. And trust me, there's a few more other aliases in there. I think there was like six. Starting from the time that Regis Brown was charged for the murders of his wife and stepdaughter, Tammy, there began a flurry of motions going back and forth from Lawrence County Adult Probation Office, the DA's office, and SCI Albion Prison that Brown was being held, and those in the Erie County office. Starting in March of 2019, Lawrence County DA's office was served with information formed by e-service motion to transcribe on 3819, order of court, uh, court reporter to begin transcribing the hearing that was held on 228-19 from Lawrence County DA's office from 32819 19 May-June 2019. Notices to go back and forth for continuances. Also in August, the trial to be moved to September, trial moved to October 2019. Motion for funds for Lawrence County Adult Probation, DA notice, 1019,19, which were approved for $2500, which was not to exceed that amount. And, um, and now mind you, those are taxpayer funds. Uh, continuance to move trial to ten twenty three nineteen. Move to November. Motions continue back and forth in Feb- February twenty twenty. There was a pro se documentation sent from Lawrence County to Erie County starting to 25-20, and a motion of continuance on three twenty six twenty granted. Move to April twenty twenty, which I'm sure it was because of uh, COVID. Petition for transport order was sent as an e-notice to Lawrence County Adult Probation, DA, Public Defender's Office on 7-22-20. July 28, 2020, Brown was transported from SCI Albion to Lawrence County in return. Brown was then next scheduled for an appearance on 12-7-2020. Brown's next scheduled appearance is or was scheduled for 1-4-2020 with President Judge Dominic Motto. Now, why all these transfers? Because remember when I talked about Brown confessing to the murders of Tompkins? Well, he wasn't done there. Brown confessed to several murders, or at least has ties to as many as 16 murders, which Takes us to the murder and confession of Robert McCarty. Now, who is Robert McCarty and how did he die and why did Brown confess to his murder? In October 2019, John Earl Poole Jr., aka Big John, and his attorney filed a motion that stated, although, and this is in parentheses, and I'm going to try my best to break. Breaking and down into what I can determine, what the judge is saying, the law is subject to interpretation. Yes, his client, Poole, did indeed confess to the murder of McCarty. He is now coming forward to say that they not only have someone else's statement, but proof after the fact of judgment. This was Poole's confession per court documents and I'm going to give you a trigger warning the facts given rise to these convictions are as follows now a lot of this is per is is verbatim from the court documents so and all of this all my sources are going to be in in Facebook um, on my page and stuff like that but this is verbatim but I'll break it down as we go through or towards the end, which will be easier. The facts given rise to these convictions are as follows. On February 5th, 2017, Poole and his friend Robert McCarty, McCarthy, here in after considered the victim, were drinking alcohol and smoking crack in the victim's apartment located on East 9th Street in Erie, PA. At some point in the evening, Poole stabbed him several times in the head and neck, causing the victim's demise. Poole also took the victim's wallet and a bottle of his prescription medication and left the victim's apartment. Several hours later, Poole returned to the victim's apartment, doused the victim with an accelerant, and set his body on fire. Now so what did they file a motion for post-conviction collateral relief for it was initially filed on april 11 2019 you would think poole would have no recourse whatsoever he confessed he did it score one for the good guys right you would be wrong and after the judges looked all of it over the the request was denied should we be cheering yet no Per the court document, and again, verbatim, here's what happened. Factual and procedural history, the, re- the relevant factual history was set forth in the undersigned opinion of October 16th, 2018. On February 5th, 2017, defendant and his friend Robert McCarthy were drinking alcohol, smoking crack, like we talked about before. The fast forward on february 5th 2017 through investigation conducted by the city of erie police department subsequent to the discovery of the victim's body Poole was identified as a person of interest at approximately 10 a.m on february 6th Poole voluntarily drove himself to the erie police department to speak with the investigators about a homicide Poole was read his rights and signed a Miranda waiver. Poole also consented to a search of his vehicle and a search of his cell phone and a search of his jacket. The victim's personal items were found in Poole's vehicle, including the victim's prescription pill bottle and wallet. Further, a towel with the victim's blood was also recovered from Poole's vehicle. Poole was the last person to see the victim alive and at this last part is one that will screw you every single time. Additionally, Poole's vehicle was seen outside the victim's apartment on surveillance video. Now, on June 7th, 2017, Poole was charged by criminal enforcement Information with criminal homicide, first-degree murder, possession of instruments of crime, aggravated assault, seven counts of recklessly endangering another person, robbery, receiving stolen property, two counts of arson, abuse of a corpse, theft by unlawful taking, and tampering with physical evidence. The Commonwealth and Poole attorney reached a plea agreement where Poole would plead guilty to murder of the third degree and robbery too. In exchange, the Commonwealth would they would no longer prosecute certain charges as long as Poole took the deal. In March on March 15, 2018, four days before the jury selection was to commence, the petitioner appeared before this court and entered negotiated guilty pleas to the charges of the murder of the third degree, reduced from the first degree murder charge, meaning he would be able to get out of jail at some point, and robbery, all remaining charges thereby withdrawn, meaning that he would spend less time in jail, just like I said, than he would have if he hadn't reached a plea agreement in the First is an automatic life sentence prison in PA. Poole knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently entered his plea of guilty to the charges set forth above. Immediately following the entry of the, pil- the guilty plea, Poole waived a pre-sentence investigative report and elected to proceed with sentencing. The court sentenced Poole at At count one, murder of the third degree to a term of 20 years to 40 years of incarceration. And at count 11, robbery to a term of 10 years to 20 years of incarceration consecutive to count one. On July 13, 2018, Poole filed a pro se notice of appeal. The court directed Poole to file a statement of errors complained on an appeal pursuant. On October 3rd, 2018, counsel for Poole filed a statement of intent to file a brief as well as an application to withdraw as counsel. The court issued it with an opinion on October 16, 2018. February 22, 2019, while the direct appeal was still pending with the Pennsylvania Superior Court, Poole filed a pro se PCRA in which he raised the exact issues as he is raised in the pcra by order of march 18 2019 the court dismissed the february 22nd 2019 pcra as a premature filing and outside the court's jurisdiction so you and they and they quote in here to see the memorandum opinion and order from the march 18th 2019 order so, on March 20th, 2018, the Superior Court of Pennsylvania affirmed Poole's judgment of sentence and granted the application to withdraw as counsel, Commonwealth v. Poole. Now, Poole then filed an instant PM say motion for post-conviction collateral relief on April 11th, 2019. Attorney William Hathaway appointed by the court on April 24, 2019. On May 21, 2019, Attorney Hathaway filed a motion for extension of time requesting 60 days to file a supplement to the PCRA. This extension request was granted by order of May 23, 2019. On July, two, July 19th of 2019, Hathaway filed a supplement to motion of post-conviction collateral relief. Now, due to the matters raised in the post-conviction collateral relief or the, or the matters raised in the PCRA, the court concluded that the claim set forth by pool in the PCRA and the responses received from the Commonwealth raised material issues of fact requiring an evidentiary hearing pursuant to par criminal uh, pursuant 908 therefore the court conducted an evidentiary hearing commencing on september 30th 2019 and continued on october 7th 2019 to consider the merits of pull's claim Prior to rendering a decision the court scheduled a final status conference on October 15th 2019 to provide counsel the opportunity to supplement the record and additional evidence or argument at this hearing the commonwealth subjected or submitted the commonwealth exhibits 4A5 or 4A 454C and 5 and rested Poole offered no further evidence or testimony. Therefore, the record was closed. But what does it mean? What it means is that Poole was entitled to withdraw his guilty plea, but he had to show proof that there was actual evidence that had become available and had been available at the time of his trial and it would have completely changed the outcome of the trial so what was the new evidence now i have to admit my curiosity was high and i have to say i kept reading and reading and usually most cases don't do that for me Uh, In most cases, you get very, very tired very, very quickly. The court document goes into what's called a Brady violation, which did the prosecution fail to disclose favorable evidence to the defendants upon request? If the evidence is material to either guilt or punishment, which could cause the conviction to be vacated and prosecution themselves could have disciplinary actions taken against them. But this is where Regis Brown comes into play. Regis Brown allegedly confessed to the murder of Robert McCarthy either on or about September 21st, 2018, about six months after Poole's entry of a guilty plea on March 15, 2018. But on September 30th, 2018, Poole acknowledged that there was no basis of a Brady violation and therefore was dismissed. But what this came down to was this, the Post-Conviction Relief Act for an action by which persons convicted of crimes they did not convict and persons serving illegal sentences may obtain collateral relief. A petitioner must plead and provide a preponderance of the evidence to that the conviction or sentence resulted from the unavailability at the time of trial of ex- evidence that the sequentially became available and would have changed the outcome of the trial had it been introduced in order for pool to be eligible for post-conviction re- collateral relief based upon after discovered evidence. He must prove one, the evidence has been discovered after trial and it could not have been obtained at or prior to trial through reasonable diligence. Two, the evidence is not cumul- cumulative. Three, it is not being used solely to impeach credibility. And four, it would likely compel a different verdict. And it gives citations to different cases. In order for poll to be eligible for post-conviction collateral relief based on after discovered evidence he must prove again one evidence has been discovered after trial two the evidence is not cumulative and three it's not being used to impeach credibility and four it would you know compel a different verdict it goes on to that again now the court denied part of his petition because pool knowingly and willingly entered the plea in a sound mind and understood what he was doing. A person who elects to plead guilty is bound by the statements he makes in open court while under oath. And he may not later assert grounds for withdrawing the plea, which contradict the statements he made at his plea hearing. Okay, so that's there's uh, citations there also. But what, could, what should happen if evidence comes after someone is convicted and has made a plea deal? If it's determined that something like this should happen and there's evidence that has been brought forth that absolutely would have changed the outcome of someone's trial, they could be granted a new one where they could withdraw their guilty plea. Now, this is C. Commonwealth v. Peoples, all right, so if anything ever like that comes in mind, just keep that that one in the back of your head. Even though that case was decided under a post-conviction hearing act, the holding still stood for this case. Pretty interesting, right? There was a couple of other cases that were cited for this and if you if you want to read up on them the sources will be listed on Facebook. Even though people or even though Poole gave a knowingly true plea the court now had to look at Brown's statement. And what exactly was his statement? First you have to look at the credibility. Then the court looked at the testimony of the troopers. So where the retired where the now retired state trooper Joseph Vassetti and trooper Justin Werner, who were working the criminal investigation unit, began looking into the cold case of Bryce Tompkins. Bassetti had testified that Brown, previously known <laughs> as another alias. Rex Knight confessed to murdering murdering Tompkins and the troopers followed up on the investigation. They came to Erie, PA on September 1st, 2018 to conduct an interview with Brown who at that time was incarcerated at the Erie County Prison. During this recorded interview, Brown confessed to murdering Robert, Robert McCarthy. Now, Brown confessed to murdering Robert, McCarthy and had stated why he did it, that because McCarthy had reneged on an agreement involving drugs. This is the evidence that was the center of the PCRA set forth as after discovered evidence. The statement that Brown gave, he claimed that he was familiar with McCarthy and had, quote, dealt with him a couple of times and he seemed solid, end quote, On February 6, 2017, he had given him, he had driven him, his green 2008 Jeep Patriot. Now, keep that in mind because it's important to McCarthy's apartment to physically confront McCarthy about the agreement. Now, Brown alleged that the two parties had agreed to exchange cocaine for Vicodin pills which I don't think that's a good deal. Brown stated he gave McCarthy the pills, but McCarthy had not given Brown the cocaine in return. Brown confessed that he gave McCarthy on the that he called McCarthy on the phone early in the evening before the murder prior to arriving at the residence. Brown repeatedly tried to collect he went to McCarthy's residence to get the cocaine or money for the pills. Brown Brown said he went to McCarthy's to collect at his residence to either get the cocaine or the money or the pills. Now, Brown identified the address of McCarthy's as, now you have to, read. I usually don't give the address, but I have to at this point at 592 East 9th Street. And described the residence as a regular house with white siding and little steps. When Brown arrived at the apartment and gave McCarthy and and McCarthy gave him another excuse, Brown stated he pulled out his six-inch knife and stabbed McCarthy three times in the neck. Brown said that McCarthy fell to the floor and Brown stood. Over top of him and left without taking anything. Now, I'm going to take a step back from this, and there have been previous episodes where I have said before if you're going to murder someone, and by no means am I condoning murder, but there seems to be the biggest mistakes in all murder cases. One, one and done. The least number of strikes or none is best. Two, the more you know, the more who know, the more to talk and they walk. Three, do your homework. It might be a pain in the ass, but geez, those who've been caught for the smallest things. Four, don't write anything down. You might think it's cool to keep a record or a trophy, it's not, it's how you get caught. Five, For God's sakes, if you're going to take the rap for someone, make sure you know the exact way something's happened. Now, if number five didn't give you a clue as to what I'm going to tell, hang in there. Trooper Vassetti testified he had received a request from Trooper Susan Elhem from Pennsylvania State Police in Erie to specifically ask Brown about the McCarthy murder. Now, Trooper Edelham was informed by Major Seymour in Erie County Prison that Brown had written a letter wherein Brown was taken responsibility for the murder of Robert McCarthy. And Brown was concerned that Big John had, quote, taken the case. Now, all parties agreed that Big John is referenced to petitioner John Poole, who, I have to tell you, is a physically large man at approximately 6'5 and 340 pounds. In other words, the reference, quote, taken the case meant Poole had taken responsibility for the murder and was serving a sentence for it. But here's the problem with Brown's, quote, confession. Evidence and reports indicate McCarthy's upper torso was burned. Brown didn't make any statements that he burned the body. You would have thought that if Brown had done that, he would have remembered something that specific. And Trooper Vassetti testified Brown, quote, felt bad. Poole was charged in McCarthy's murder and wanted to, quote, clear things up. I'm not sure how to take brown quote feeling bad big john is six five i'm thinking if he didn't feel bad quote unquote then he would have quote felt worse if he didn't if he hadn't made a confession hell at this point he was on the hook for at least put for himself up to 16 murders possibly what's one more there's no death penalty in pa you can only serve one life sentence even though you can be sentenced with more than one So unless we develop a cryo system where the person has to stay frozen for the length of time of their sentence, what then? I mean, do they get released? And ethically, you can't keep them frozen. And what about those families that the victim died? The criminals would live way longer than intended. But hey, let's put ethics aside for right now. Both Trooper Vassetti and Trooper Werner testified that Brown was cooperative and answered all of their questions during the interview. Both troopers further op- opinion that they felt Brown's confession was credible. However, and important to this court's assessment, both troopers conceded that there was no way Brown was involved with Robert McCarthy's homicide investigate and did not have the benefit of Of personal knowledge of the details of McCarthy's murder. The troopers had not read any reports regarding the Erie Police Department's investigation and were not armed with any knowledge of the McCarthy murder prior to the interview. Additionally, the troopers were unaware of whether Poole and Brown were housed together at the Erie County Prison in March of 2018 through May of 2018. Therefore, Brown could not be confronted with the facts of Mr. McCarthy's murder, and Brown's statement went unverified and simply accepted by the troopers. So, were Poole and Brown housed together? That's something we have to wait and see, so please bear with me. Now, let's find out what the Commonwealth's testimony is. The testimony of Erie County ADA Jeremy Leitner, who all just happened to be the co-prosecutor for the McCarthy murder case and was very familiar with the evidence at that crime scene, witness statement, autopsy report, and evidence recovered from Poole's vehicle, and the surveillance footage around McCarthy's residence and neighborhood and other aspects of the investigation. Wait a minute. Did they just say surveillance footage? That could be interesting. ADA Leitner listened to the taped interview of Brown's confession, which he then testified that he found discrepancies in Brown's statement to the troopers. Part of Leitner's testimony was that he personally reviewed the video surveillance evidence that he obtained of McCarthy's neighborhood in and around the time of the murder. So where am I going with all this? ADA Leitner also testified that Brown's vehicle, a green Jeep Patriot, was never seen on surveillance footage. Oops. However, Poole's vehicle, a Dodge Charger, was viewed several times. Not only did Poole's vehicle appear on video, but had been seen parked in the vicinity of McCarthy's apartment at 539 East. 9th street at all the times that were relevant to the murder and subsequent arson wait there was a fire so if so was the fire department called it just happened that it was the fire had been called in by the other tenants in mccarthy's building at approximately 4 a.m on February 5th, 2017, at which time McCarthy's charred body was discovered. ADA Leitner testified that they used used a timeline to reconstruct what happened to McCarthy by utilizing the autopsy report and video surveillance. Trigger warning! ADA Leitner stated that the autopsy report showed that McCarthy had been deceased at the time his body had been ignited and the physical evidence regarding the cause of death included the blood loss indicated he had died hours earlier to the arson. ADA-Leitner described the primary surveillance footage near Mr. McCarthy's residence revealed Pohl's Dodge Charger was the last vehicle parked in Mr. McCarthy's driveway on the evening of February 4, 2017. He testified Pohl's vehicle was was observed on the video driving by the victim's residence multiple times later that night on February 4th, 2017, and through the early morning hours of February 5th, 2017. ADA Lightner explained footage from a second surveillance camera in the neighborhood showed that the Dodge Charger parked nearby McCarthy's residence around 4 a.m. on February 5th, 2017, shortly before the report of the fire at 539 East 9th Street was called in. He testified that the fire on East 9th Street became visible on the primary surveillance video around the same time the Dodge Charger is seen leaving the area on the second surveillance video at approximately 4 a.m. ADA Leitner went on to conclude that based on the autopsy report and video footage as well as witness statements placing the petitioner on Mr. McCarthy, along with placing Mr. Poole with Mr. McCarthy on the evening of February 4th, 2017. The Commonwealth's theory was that Poole murdered Mr. McCarthy at approximately 7 p.m. on February 4th, 2017. ADA Leitner continued and stated that because the presence of Poole's vehicle at the scene of the crime and later discovered evidence of personal items of the victim. In Poole's vehicle, the Commonwealth believed Poole returned to the victim's residence at approximately 4 a.m. to burn the body in an attempt to conceal his evidence, er, his involvement in the murder and robbery. The A, uh, ADA Leitner tes- testified that additional surveillance videos obtained from stores in the area showed that Poole changed clothes after the murder and those clothes had never been recovered. Now, trigger warning again, Mr. McCarthy... Suffered nine stab wounds, and the wounds were more consistent with a quote unusual sharp object. ADA Leitner testified that a blue plastic, sharp tipped object, which appeared to have been broken off a larger object, was found in the pool of Mr. McCarthy's blood on the couch. ADA Leitner and Dr. Vay, who was the coroner at the time, would have stated that this was the item that would have correlated with the type of weapon used to murder Mr. McCarthy. So, not a six-inch knife, nor stabbed three times. Okay, ADA Leitner also testified that Mr. McCarthy's couch was soaked through with blood and the lack of blood on the floor near the charred body indicated Mr. McCarthy was killed on the couch then burned on the floor, which completely refutes Mr. Brown's statement. ADA Leitner testified that Poole had made comments about that he had, quote, screwed up and, quote, would never see his kids again, unquote. During the interview, Poole signed a consent for the detectives to search his vehicle. The Dodge Charger, he told the detectives they would find Mr. McCarthy's wallet and a bottle of prescription pills that belonged to Mr. McCarthy in the center console of the vehicle. ADA Leitner testified that Poole was observed on the surveillance from the wine and spirits store at approximately 7.15 p.m. on February 4th, 2017 which, according to the Commonwealth's theory, was shortly after Poole had killed Mr. McCarthy. Now, in the trunk of the vehicle, the detectives found a wine and spirits bag with a receipt dated February 4, 2017, at 7.15. Inside the bag, the detectives found Lysol spray, wipes, and a bloody towel. Subsequent testing confirmed the blood on the towel belongs to Mr. McCarthy. ADA Leitner testified that most notable detail of the McCarthy murder, aside from nine stab wounds, was the fact that the body had been burned. ADA Leitner testified that Brown's confession did not contain any detail made public. But that's not all, and I'm starting to sound like that guy from the commercial. ADA Leitner also testified that the statement by Brown was eerily similar to a statement relayed to the DA's office by an inmate named Faisal Muhammad. Muhammad, an acquaintance of Poole, contacted the DA's office to relay that another inmate named Tyree Salter had committed the murder of Robert McCarthy. ADA Leitner stated that further investigation into this claim was unsubstantiated and without merit. Based on this, ADA Leitner drew a parallel to this case and viewed Brown's confession as another contrived attempt by Poole to avoid the consequences of his heinous act. As this opinion unfolds and the record is reviewed, the court agrees Now, ADA Leitner testified that through the investigation, there was no evidence linking any individual other than Poole to the crimes. Even when the Erie detectives assigned to the case testified, they also could not connect Regis Brown to the murder of McCarthy. There just wasn't any evidence. Brown also made a claim that he called McCarthy on February 4th, 2017. McCarthy's phone records were reviewed and no numbers were connected to Brown. As a follow-up to listening to Brown's tape statement, Detective Beriducci stated that Detective Bogart made several attempts to interview Brown but were unsuccessful because Brown had moved several times within the state system. Finally, on September 19, 2019, Detective Beriducci and Detective Bogart located Brown and arranged for a face-to-face interview with him. However, questioning not even commenced before Brown refused to speak with them, citing legal and health issues. Quote-unquote. No further interview was attempted. That doesn't sound like someone who's trying to come clean, but then again, if you're in jail and you're seen talking to police, your life could be made very uncomfortable, if you get my meaning. More to the point to all of this, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. To demonstrate that Poole and Brown had ample opportunity to manufacture this scenario, the Commonwealth called Major Gary Seymour, Deputy Warden of security and safety at the Erie County Prison. Deputy Seymour is the custodian of records and at prison and authenticated the logs regarding the prison cell assignments of Pohl and Brown between March 8, 2018 through uh, May 2000, 2018. Major Seymour explained the configuration of the Erie County prison and described how the prison is divided into, quote, pods, which can hold up to 94 inmates each. Each pod is then subdivided into smaller groups, approximately 24 inmates, Group A, Group B, Group C, and D, to limit the number of inmates out of their cells at one time. When they are out of their cells, inmates have unmonitored and face-to-face access with each other in day room and or the gym. Major Seymour confirmed Poole and Brown were housed together at the Erie County Prison in Pod F through B and sleeping only three cells apart at least March 27, 2018 to May 15, 2018, which it is cited for in that particular part of the uh, document. Consequently, Poole was provided nearly unrestricted access and opportunity to share facts of the McCarthy homicide with Brown. At the conclusion of Major Seymour's testimony, the Commonwealth rested. Now, to me, that's when the proverbial mic drop would have happened. Boom. At least Big John cannot say that Brown did not give his damnedest. Because he did, Hell, he's flown with 12, 13 bodies. Extra. And he... did he do all of them? I don't know. Am I gonna mess with them? Mm, no. Big no. But these stories need to be told. Who were the others that he supposedly killed or that he's saying that he killed? Doesn't matter that they were on drugs or in gangs. They're someone's child. Brother, sister, spouse, mother, father, they're people. This is where I'm going to end the episode for right now. I'm sure there will be more to follow up with in the future with other cases to talk about connected to Brown. And if you enjoyed this episode and this is your first time listening, please go back and download the past episodes all things eerie from eerie pa it's it's available on podbean.com itunes spotify facebook and i just again want to thank everyone who's been listening um, you can also go to twitter and instagram it's at k-a-t-h-y-b-r-d-l-y and those links Will be available to the new upcoming uh, upcoming episodes of All Things Erie from Erie PA, and I just want to remind you the new uh, podcast will be coming out. The new one will be coming out this month. Um, that'll be Pullside Confessions. I, I really hope that you will be um, you will enjoy this first story. It is uh, definitely very interesting. It has. <laughs> A lot of intrigue murder um, sex and um, poison so so look for that Um, also I'll be honest with you I usually have some kind of nugget at the end of these episodes um, but this one was pretty draining Uh, this guy was interesting but I'm holding out hope that one day he'll tell someone why he killed his wife and his stepdaughter. And that's, that closure is what's needed for those that are still among the living. And that is what can drive those family members to the brink. And I hope that's sometimes that's all we have. And sometimes that has to be enough to get us through. So I guess I did have something for it. So stay safe, stay healthy. And this is Kathy signing off.